Hello, and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelle Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chijong, a culture writer and critic. This week, we're discussing Elvis and the Machinai, two very different approaches to the person behind the performer. So how's your week been? We're winding down January. How's it going so far? Uh, week has been okay. We are recording this over Lunar New Year, actually. So We are. Oh my have, god, Happy New Year. Yeah, Year of the Rabbit. Yeah, Year of the Rabbit, which is like a very cute sort of icon in particular this year. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, but yeah, enjoyed some dumplings, some like homemade Chinese food, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I ate some dumplings last night. They were that's good. good. I mean, dumplings yeah. are like... To be honest, they're always a good idea, but especially yeah. around this time. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's all that's really going on with me. Um, how are you, Palin? I'm good. Um, I got laid off this week, yeah. but we're doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's, you know, this is life. I've, I've enjoyed my time at my previous work and I'm really excited for whatever's next. Yeah. Um, we've yeah. been, we've been talking about this a little bit, which is why I, I don't appear shocked in this recording, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this could be a time for something new. So can you just yeah. like maybe take a second and and broadcast it out there in case anyone is listening to this, any of our listeners, mm. any of their f- friends who might be able to hook you up with where you really want to go? Oh, sure. Um, so I want to get into writing. Uh, screenwriting specifically so if you know of anyone in the film and tv industry that is looking for a writer's assistant or anything like that um anything on the development side you know these are the things that i'm interested in getting into um but at the same time if you are a culture or film editor um like tv or film and you edit pieces about that i would also love to write for you um, cause I want to develop my writing and build up my bylines. These are the things that I'm like interested in getting into. Um, I also be shooting a short film over the spring. So if you know anybody that has shot films or is in the, you know, in the film and TV department on the technical side, like behind the camera, and there's someone that you know that you think is great, um, also that too. Uh, but in the meantime, please, uh, please stay tuned for my you know, GoFundMe link or like see the spark <laughs> link in the coming days, in the coming weeks. Um, but that's pretty much it. Like, I think, you know, the, the, it's, it's weird to like start anew, but it's something that I really, really want. So yeah. I hope it works out for, yeah, for me. Please <laughs> absolutely either reach out to us or directly to Pellin, uh, if you do have any opportunity or second and third hand of something that could be good so thank you so much everyone and yeah thank thank you you guys yeah and just keep honestly like above anything else just like keep listening to this Uh, i think it's just the thing that i've enjoyed so much that i've been doing these last couple years and i can't wait to like keep doing it so just keep listening to us keep recommending us to your friends um yeah that's that's pretty much it uh now for your pick this week what did you watch 
So this week I finally gave in <laughs> and watched Elvis. This is the latest Baz Luhrmann movie about obviously Elvis Presley. It did the whole rounds on in, like in the cinema circuit and then ended up on HBO Max. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. Yeah, I'll get to it. And I finally did just out of sheer curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is much discussed, I would say. Uh, I think the thing that finally made me very curious about it was just you know, the amount of critics that were cleanly split between loving it and hating it and mm. no in between. Um, so I was just like, all right, let me let me get around to this. Um, it's essentially, a, it's about Elvis Presley, but the narrator or the person that takes us through the film is this guy called Colonel Parker. He was the longtime manager of Elvis and essentially the person that many say contributed to his downfall and like worsening health that led to his early death in at the age of 42 Mm -hmm. so just a huge caveat from me i am not an elvis head like i'm not an elvis stan i know that a lot of people are in this world it's no disrespect to you i think just given my age given where i'm from he's just someone that is like so big of a star that he kind of became beyond human to me Mm -hmm. um so he's he he's more like it's more iconography than like a person that is a star that is a singer and everything. Yeah. Um, I guess the first time I understood and empathized with him as like a person that lived uh, was probably on the Parapraxis episode of Malcolm Glad- Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. Did you ever listen to that? I feel like... No, no. I feel like a lot of people, you know, Malcolm Gladwell gets clowned now, but even after watching this film, it's still my favorite piece of Elvis content. But anyway, back to the film. What were your thoughts, Jenny? So I think I'm, I, I ultimately don't think I would have watched this if it hadn't been your pick. Yeah. Um, cause I'm yeah. not really a, a biopic girl. I'm not really, yeah. I was just like never in the type of person that listened to Elvis or cared, thought too much yeah. about Elvis again, like you. But I found myself kind of surprised by how much I enjoyed certain aspects of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah. I, so that's like the love part of the love hate reception. But there's also like the the hate part and the parts that I think kind of ruin it a little bit for me. So I can mm-hmm. understand both sides of that equation. But yeah, yeah, totally. I was like totally surprised by how lush and like humanistic some parts of it were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the same as you. I'm not really a big fan of biopics. I, I I think it's really hard to get them right, and I think a lot of them follow the same format that i don't care for that being like the cradle to grave format yeah i'd much rather pinpoint a certain phase or a certain couple of years in mm-hmm. a person's life to kind of explain everything you know yeah in, t- in terms of their entire uh life journey but um yeah this is this is clearly for the fans you know like it, it, i think that's the main thing of it is i really respected how much they wanted to celebrate him and like celebrate his performances and like celebrate the costumes and where he performed and how he performed it at what stage in his life Mm -hmm. it's clearly just something that was yeah just just a huge present to any any elvis fan out there i think it's a huge gift yeah and you can see how much buzz lerman like really i could feel his love for elvis and for all these aspects of like the the showmanship it's like buzz lerman is a showman and he's sort of use that to like showcase uh elvis and, and austin butler showmanship here yeah so it totally. really it really did feel like a love letter in a sense yeah i totally agree i mean i i saw that baz Luhrmann had been like dinged with a couple critics that he's not american um mm-hmm. baz Luhrmann is obviously australian 
But I don't really, I don't think that matters because it's just a directing style. And I think he is the appropriate director for this. Like you said, he's a showman. He's a maximalist. And anything he does, he just goes like all out <laughs> in a way that I think can be a little bit, I wouldn't say unnerving, but a little bit too much for a lot of people. Which Yeah, very off-putting to some people. I wanted to just start off talking specifically about, I think, the thing that matters the most in this. And it is the person playing the man. Austin Butler mm-hmm. is so good in this. And I would be lying if I said that I my initial curiosity to actually watch it wasn't sparked by his acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. Just for backstory for anyone that hasn't heard, uh, Austin Butler method acted for, for this role. He he basically like used the way that Elvis speaks and like did not stop speaking that way and was obsessed with his uh character yeah. to the point where I think his you know, he's done interviews where he's like, yeah, my family, like my friends were all just kind of concerned for me because I was like so thick in the weeds with this Elvis character. Yeah. Um, and and like, he's like, I'm stuck with it. Like, it's, yeah, it's months later. It's even like several months, I mean, a year yeah. later after the the filming ended and he is he's still talking like it. Yeah. And, you know, when he did his Golden Globes acceptance speech, I think a lot of people that hadn't already heard him speak at that point suddenly realized that that was true and real and happening i will say i think it's not as strong as it is in the film but you can still hear it like you can hear elvis in his voice i don't know really what austin butler sounded like before this role but there are before and after (laughs) clips floating around which is kind of funny there is like a a noticeable difference and what is funny about him is he is essentially i think he came up as like a disney kid more or less like he he did not really have a very you know, prestigious or um, noteworthy sort of resume before yeah. this, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I, I I think me, along with a, a bunch of critics, I ironically love this. I'm usually quite exasperated by the method actor. Uh, but in this case, I think it's fantastic. Um, I kind of love how much he's living in this. Um, you know, his his acceptance speech was very sweet. And I think he's he's a serious candidate for an oscar win so Mm. happy for him it's clearly a star making role uh clearly a star making performance another fascinating thing about this film again that piqued my curiosity enough to watch it is just there seems to be like a weird law going around it you know elvis's death was very tragic very early and i think a lot of his fans also like part of i wouldn't say the appeal but part of why they are so committed to him is just knowing that there was so much tragedy in his life. Like, he grew up very poor, became a huge star, and then, like, the star just burned out a little bit too soon. And his Mm -hmm. decline as well, his declining health, I think is just something that is, like, a lot of people have studied. It's, like, the the quintessential, like, American, like, rise and fall story, I think. Yeah. And, you know, that, that existing, and then just the very recent tragedy of Lisa Marie Presley, his daughter, dying literally the day after the golden globes where Orson butler won and she attended with her mother priscilla is kind of it is it's, it's just very saddening and i think there's there's something that like there's a mystique or like some kind of i don't know like almost magical feeling that's been going on with this film which i know that like adds to the idolization it adds to the kind of like what feels like a superhuman element to all of this but yeah it's really sad like yeah. the whole th- the whole thing is just really sad so i, I want to get into a little bit of the critical reception 
specifically, <laughs> we're bringing it back to my dude, Richard Brody. Um, <laughs> uh, so he did not like this film. He didn't think that Orson Butler was very good. He also said that it was a gaudily decorated Wikipedia article. How do you feel about this? <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about what he said? I'm not surprised to hear that he doesn't like this. It's yeah. really not up his bag, I think. Yeah. Like, I think Austin Butler was was good in this for what yeah. he was supposed to do. I, I kind of understand the, you know, gaudily decorated. Well, yes, it is gaudily decorated. This is Boslerman. Like, this is how yeah. he is. Wikipedia article, you know, that is the kind of the, the critique of, of biopic, right? Like, especially yeah. the the cradle to grave format, as you said. Um, yeah. But I, I have to say, like, I think Austin Butler was really good. And I think yeah. we both agree on yeah. that. Yeah, I think, like, more specifically, the thing that repelled, I guess, him and a lot of people, especially, like, just some of my friends that I talked to about, like, they just hated some of the directing choices that were made. Like, mm -hmm. I get it. I think especially in the first like 10 minutes, I was just a little bit like, what is going on? I do not understand. Um, yeah. And then throughout it too, like some, there were some, some choices. Like, I think the punching in was just something that I didn't understand. I didn't understand why we were using this method. Uh, but the transitions were just the thing. I was just like, this is batshit. Like that I don't yeah. understand why it's so, so dynamic. I mean, this is not really our personal no, taste of no. movies i think we can say that both of us yeah yeah um, yeah but but again like that is like part of accepting who the director is like what yeah. his film filmmaking style is yeah um, yeah but i'll say like the thing that i thought came closest to throwing the whole thing off for me was framing the whole thing through colonel parker yes same yeah. And that really, yeah. I think that bugged a lot of people. And yeah. I I have to say myself included. Yeah, it's my biggest critique. It's just, I think the overall choice was a bad one. Like, I know this guy exists. I know he was fundamental in this guy's story. But do I need to see it through his perspective? Do I need him to talk me through it? And like, seeing something through the eyes of the antagonist? No, I don't, I don't really care. Especially not when the name of the movie is Elvis, who that's why we're all here. You know, that he's the reason. It was a shame because we want to watch, if, if it's Elvis and that's, you know, our protagonist and the person that we're here for, we want to see him have a little bit more agency. And like, if he doesn't have it, which is, I think, part of the, part of his, the tragedy of his story. Yeah. We still want to see that. We want to see the loss of agency. We want to see who's affecting it through his lens, like through his perspective. And because we didn't get it, it just kind of felt a little bit like we lost a huge part of how we understand Elvis to be. And it's wild that he gets lost in his own movie. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's wild to me that as maximalist as this is, as much as this tries to celebrate him, and it does, and stylistically it's like something truly like Americana to the nth degree, and that's exactly who Elvis was as a person. Mm -hmm. Still, I couldn't really tell you anything about this guy. Yeah, um, and that's a shame. You know, and, for two for yeah. two hours and forty minutes, that's a huge shame. Right. I really think the only the the best parts of it are the performances again, and like seeing yeah. how Elvis comes out in that, how our understanding of Elvis comes from that primarily. Uh, another note on Colonel Parker, I think, is just like very simply, like Tom Hanks. Oh my god, he's just like a a cartoon character playing this yeah. guy. Yeah, everything yeah. from like. This this weird pseudo Dutch accent, which is not yeah. really working as an as an accent, yeah. to like 
the whole persona. It's just, yeah. it is so comically like yeah, bad, bad. I think. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. And it's a shame because like hair and makeup is so good in the rest of the film. And his character, just because of the, the extent of the transformation, it like it cheapens the entire process. Like it cheapens the hair and makeup department and their entire work that they did for like Austin Butler and everybody else. It's a shame, man. With Tom Hanks, especially, it's Tom Hanks. Like we all know it's Tom Hanks, you know? Like there's it's very, very weird to see him in this kind of get up and just making the whole thing, like you said, seem really comical and bad. Um yeah, not great. Not great at all. In terms of like the story and how it was decided to be that way and how much mystique there still is with Elvis and how much, you know, we, we like gritty emotional uh, truths told when we're focusing on a person. We don't really get much of that in this. And I think a lot of that might have to do with the fact that Baz Luhrmann did work very closely with the Presley estate. He worked very closely with Lisa Marie and uh, Priscilla as well. It's good. You get access, but at the same time, it can damage the storytelling because there is bias there and there is like an element of like protectiveness that they understandably have towards their husband and father. Mm -hmm. Um, Like overall, I did respect this movie. I respect it. I think it set out to do something and I think it achieved it somewhat. Uh, I think it did get in its own way because of the storytelling choices and some of the casting choices as well. Um, to continue the Elvis Presley canon, Sofia Coppola is currently shooting a movie about Priscilla mm. um, right now. Uh, she created an Instagram profile to document that process. Uh, but I'm fascinated to see like her approach in this as well, especially considering Jacob Elordi is going to play Elvis. And that's fascinating oh, to me. I didn't yeah. Know. Is, yeah. That, is that why he, he wore that Elvis Halloween costume? Or Probably. was this what came first? I don't know. I don't know what the chicken or the egg was with that. <laughs> uh, but it's always fun when you get two actors of the same like age age group try and attempt the same person. So yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be exciting for people to watch. Yeah. All right, Jenny. So what did you watch this week? I watched the Makanai, or full title, the Makanai Cooking for the Maiko House, which is on Netflix. This is a new series about a Maiko or Geisha house in the, the Geisha district, like Gion, Kyoto. It's directed by Hirokazu Koreada, um, who has made films before. He's had, I think, won the Palm d'Or for a film a few years ago. Shoplifters, yeah. I think yes, so. yes, yeah. that is him. Um, and this series is adapted from a popular manga in Japan called Kyo and Kyoto about like the same uh, story in the same micro house. Mm-hmm. So the series follows two friends, Kyo, who's played by Nana Mori, and Sumire, who's played by Natsuki Deguchi, who after graduating from junior high at the age of like 15, they leave their hometown, uh, for Kyoto to train to become Maiko, aka apprentice Geisha. Um, while they're at the house, Kyo quickly discovers that she just doesn't have the like aptitude for becoming a Maiko, but she is very suited to becoming the house's makanai or a resident cook. And meanwhile, Sumire continues down the path of becoming a Maiko and is supposed to be just this like rising star in that world. This is sort of an anti-drama in that you would expect that this setup, this like premise that, that I just like went through 
it would perfectly lead to rivalry or resentment or some kind of tension between these two friends as they pursue their different paths from the same dream. But actually, it like kind of totally sidesteps that. And instead, it's mostly about exploring the everyday lives of the different people in this house in this like little orbit. Yeah. Um, so how how did you find this, Pellen? Like, how far did you get through this series? Um, I finished it. I've, I've completed nice, nice. the nine episode run. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I didn't, when I started watching, I didn't realize that this was a Corrida joint. Yeah. Um, I was just like, oh, that's the guy from Shoplifters. And oh, that's the kid from Shoplifters. And I didn't make the connection. Um, now it makes sense, obviously, because he's all about chosen family. That's his, that's mm. his whole bag. That's his mm-hmm. whole like theme that he has throughout almost every single one of his films. And I had a really fun time. Like, I think initially it felt very uh, slow. Um, it felt very second screen watch, you mm-hmm. know. But once you, once I put my phone down and I actually just started watching it, especially because the food, the, the way that the yeah. food is shot, the way that the food is a focus is something that took me by surprise. And obviously as someone that 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 was that's my resume, I, I really respected how that was shot. You and I both, I, th- I think we are, we're partial to anything food related especially on screen so mm. i really enjoyed it i think there's just something quite special about this one yeah it's yeah. very it's very comforting it's very cozy very warm um like you said the, the this like loving attention to cooking or other details in in this sort of lifestyle that they lead it's very idyllic in a sense and it's just this is like wonderful worlds of women where there, you feel so much of the, the sisterhood, the chosen family, the friendship, as well as, you know, the, the dedication to craft and, and, and work and like uh, quietly working towards one's dreams. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of thing where, you know, you watch this and you, you want this to be your reality. Like you want to be in there, even though, you know, it, I'm assuming it is not as, <laughs> idyllic in real life to share you know one room with like yeah. four or five girls and like yeah. one bathroom but it's still, it's yeah. that kind of that warmth and even everything from like the way it's shot is like it has that kind of like warm tones throughout yeah, the house soft as well light. Yeah. yeah yeah it's really beautiful in that sense and it's definitely a great watch for anybody who does like this kind of like cozy more intimate quiet sort of feeling in their in their tv uh, drama mm-hmm. and i think it's not just like a total lifestyle porn or anything either like it yeah. it actually does have i think quietly interesting things to say about ambition and you know what it takes to follow your dreams like what kind yeah. of sacrifice that might take like especially it comes through and for example there's there are quite a few threads about love versus ambition and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know as a geisha they are supposed to remain unmarried. You know, once you do get married, you you kind of have to are expected to leave your career. Yeah. And so there are several characters who kind of have to grapple with this in their way. And um, from like this woman who leaves her marriage to return to being a geisha, or this yeah. this the star geisha Momoko's hope that the industry can change and modernize to mm-hmm. allow the coexistence of both love and marriage and career yeah um, yeah i thought that was those are handled very delicately uh but clearly as well yeah i agree i also really liked how they 
I guess, in an attempt to challenge Western audiences, like understanding of geisha um, and like micro houses in general is talk so much more about how this is a tradition that, you know, is preserved. And that's that's the draw for a lot of these women. That's why they're there. It's a yeah. dedication to keeping that up and making sure that it's not lost. Um, I, I read somewhere that that they used to be like 80,000 geisha in Kyoto and now there's only like a thousand. So it is a dying art. It is a dying tradition. And the fact that, you know, it's, it's pointedly talked about where it is something that is proud, like that they are all proud of doing it. They're proud of, of all of the, the dancing, the singing, you know, the, the tradition and the culture and the terminology that they use. It's something that they really want to like keep up. Um, yeah, at the same time. Yeah. yeah. I, I really do like that moment. I think you're referring to like when, Sumire's dad is like so yeah. worried about his daughter and he does carry these sort of misconceptions about uh what it is to be a geisha and a maiko and he's like you know she's just going to be serving you know alcohol to these drunk men who might harass her that's her idea of like her, right. her dream career and then you know they they correct him like the 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 mothers of this house they correct him they're like no it's it, we really see it as sort of like s- safeguarding the this this really precious tradition and yeah. and traditional performance and way of life that we have in Japan and yeah. in that line of thought it's like um, it's equivalent to being like a kabuki performer or something yeah. like the, there is something very worth preserving in this kind of uh, tradition and yeah. I really I really liked how they showcased that as well yeah 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 I also liked how it went a little bit also speaking of ambition into while they do have several characters who ultimately kind of chose their ambition or their dreams above, you know, maybe more personal matters like love or relationships, but it doesn't really go so far as to totally idealize or like Mm -hmm. lionize ambition either. Like it has a couple of characters show that it's okay to basically give up on this dream and and pursue something else like they have the the maiko tsurikoma who does that and i thought that was a really great episode yeah yeah Um, yeah and also of course kyo who is the main character and and show how she's like perfectly satisfied taking life just one day at a time one dish at a time and that's okay too yeah it is ultimately about like how life is a series of choices and it's about just being happy with those choices that you make and that's yeah. really what makes a, a life worth living exactly and it's also like early on when you realize that she's not as adept at uh like the dances or, or like just in practice and everything when you can tell that she's not as good as her counterparts is that they're they're like yeah this isn't for you i'm just letting you know <laughs> it's yeah. just that, that, that's like that's like fascinating to me because i think like we know this to be true about certain people or whatever, but I don't think anyone ever gets to hear that as directly and then as gently and for it to be like, it's okay. Like it's okay yeah, that, that this isn't okay. your thing. And through Kyo, we realize that like, yeah, actually her strength is in, is, is in cooking and that's what she's actually passionate about. Um, and she's not, you know, just following the footsteps of her best friend. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sweet. And I think like, the part where one of the characters like she comes back late uh from christmas break and she's like crying because she misses home like yeah, she's homesick i like that i too. thought that was really that was really sweet as well because mm-hmm. it's true man like are you kidding sometimes you yeah. just want to be at home <laughs> yeah. yeah i thought that yeah now that i'm remembering that that was a really great uh 
sort of mini thread, mini storyline yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll say if there is like one issue I have with the show, it's that all the characters seem so fleshed out. They seem so, you know, like you could reach out and touch them and they're, and they're real. They're like human. And they all seem to, to grow or show different signs of like their interiority, except for Kyo, who mm. is presumably she is our main protagonist. Like the, the yeah. series is named after her. Yeah. It's, it's hard to critique because part of the point, like as we talked about is that she's happy with her choices uh, in life and she doesn't need to strive for this, you know, some contrived idea of, of ambition. And, and it's not that I want there to be forced drama or like angst or whatever between Kyo and Sumire, but it's like, she's not, human like she doesn't she doesn't change over time she doesn't really display any emotions beyond this like you know bright smiling facade um they have this moment where they they basically make her the makanai and they compare her to like a smiling guardian of their house and it's like when they did that she becomes just that this like smiling cipher of a character who doesn't yeah. really have more to do beyond that yeah she be- she became very supplemental to everybody mm-hmm. else which you know she's we understand she's providing a service which is essentially like cooking for them but even when she gets the news that she you know she's going to be the Maconite, we steamrolled past it like it didn't it just happened i i wish there was a little bit more yeah. focus on that process of her accepting this new reality but yeah. yeah, and like adjusting to that over the yeah. you know the year that follows, like, like I, I I'm curious, like, does she ever feel tired? She works very long right. hours. Yeah. Does she ever think about what could have been? Does she miss home at all? Yeah. yeah. We just don't really find out. And there is like a, a sort of comfort in finding her constant smiling presence in the kitchen, mm-hmm. like as I'm sure the characters around her do feel. But yeah it really turns her into this sort of device in a, in a, in a sense, like a, yeah. a not quite human device. Yeah. And yeah. As, as a consequence, I find myself drawn to the other characters in their journeys yeah. a lot more. I think my overall critique, and this is related to the, to that, like this falls under that umbrella. My overall mm-hmm. critique was like, this was clearly, it feels a lot like a live action anime like which obviously like it is based on a manga so it makes sense but it felt very it felt like a very faithful adaptation a little bit too faithful where not just the acting or the writing or whatever but just like yeah the character development it was just like one thing happened and then the next thing happened then we go to this character and then that happens like there there didn't seem to be too much you know i i I can imagine it felt like basically like flipping through the page of the manga more than it felt like watching a tv show at times yeah Um, there's not like um a full-on narrative arc it's kind of like vignettes of you know these different jumping from these different characters yeah yeah and i I mean i expect more from koreeda that's all (laughs) i just i really do like he's one of the like one of the best recent japanese directors of all time so uh a little bit of complexity would have been nice but Mm -hmm. are there any other characters or small moments you liked from this the show I was really drawn to Momoko's character because I I love the idea of someone that's just been the best for so long. And she looked jaded about it. Yes. And she looked like she'd had enough of, like, that that part was all to her and she wanted more. And just the way that she flipped back and forth, you know, the, the way that she 
couldn't decide if she loved someone because they loved her or if she didn't love them because she actually, like, she was scared. Like, just the way that her character thought about what it means to be in love and what it means to, like, leave this career that she's been the best at for so long mm-hmm. and, like, what that means to her and, like, is it fear of something new or it, or it is, you know, like, just not being able to trust your intuition. Like, I think that was, like, what I really enjoyed seeing her character explore and just her restlessness, in a way, was really interesting to me. Um, yeah. yeah. She's kind of the most... um adult or like mature character and storyline i think yeah and the most maybe one of the more complex ones also yeah but other than that like i love the times where we saw parts of the performance Mm -hmm. um they cut away quite quickly (laughs) off the time Mm -hmm. where we see the start of something but the performance where she's on the raft and the audience is Mm, in the the boat that was so beautiful so beautiful like truly truly stunning um you know we understand just from watching this just through the dialogue that watching a performance like this is very expensive you can't afford Mm it Uh, like not everybody can afford it um Mm -hmm. and you can understand why that might be um yeah i i do wish that we got a little bit more into the gender side of it um Mm -hmm. just in terms of the audience being predominantly male um if not every time and then obviously these are women they're performers didn't you know kind of sidestep that quite severely um and also i think the financial aspect of the house like how does money work um yeah within the house you know like when they get the money for for the performances like what does that cover um but maybe if there's a second season that's what we'll get into so yeah i thought it was like on the gender front i think part of it is just like japanese audiences know what the deal is already like yeah with the the split sort of gender they kind of made it more um I don't know whether this was a deliberate choice or this is just like, again, the reality of the the, the nature mm-hmm. of this world. But again, this kind of like feminine women's world, yeah. even like the everyone from the, the teachers to the house mothers, like this is a, like a woman led business and yes. their patrons yeah. are men, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately it is the, the women who are owning the businesses, running the businesses, making the money. Um, yeah keeping yeah. things going and then you see sort of the men in this world who are dotted around them like the, yeah. you see the the bartender who does work for them in their little like micah house bar mm-hmm. you see the um you know the father and his son who have long been employed by them to help around the house and also specifically to help to the geisha yeah. yeah help dress the geisha because it's a very long and arduous process yeah i thought that was uh cool kind of yeah. to see yeah. like how the men are very like secondary in terms of the yeah the day to day running of their lives, but also yeah. of course, like you said, they are actually the the central customer base, and we don't really see much yeah. more on that because that is, I guess, just part of it. Yeah. Um. I hope there is a season two, so we we might be able to see more of like everything. Uh, I'm really not sure. I don't think there's been any announcement of whether mm-hmm. or not this is just a limited series or whether there will be future seasons. Yeah. Um, fingers crossed Netflix. Yeah. But even if it just concludes with this, I think it does work perfectly fine as yeah. like a, a nine episode series as well. Yeah, totally. Like the arc of them arriving there and then how it ends. It felt really heartwarming and complete. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. 
So this week in culture, we are going to be talking about Sundance. Uh, and yeah. obviously, the festival is going on right now as we speak, as we record. Yeah. Yeah. And there are apparently some buzzy films premiering that people are talking about, getting excited yeah. for. A lot of critics, a lot of journalists over there. So... Obviously, Pellin, you know a lot more about Sundance and in general the film world, what's going on than me. So can you tell us like what's going on? What are people excited about? Yeah, so for anyone that doesn't know how this works, uh, what happens is films are made and then they are submitted to festivals and then festivals accept certain films. Um, Sundance, it's just industry. So these festivals are usually for buyers to buy these films. So they screen them and then like whoever was there from like Sony or Warner Brothers or Netflix or Hulu, Apple, they're like, yep, want this film, gonna buy it. And then usually at Sundance, they draw up the contracts and that's where they sign them. And then the announcements are usually made there. Usually, sometimes it's weeks after. The buzzy films are obviously the ones with stars in them, like just because everybody wants a way to sell these films. Some of the ones that uh, I think have been uh, the most famous has been um, Magazine Dreams, which stars Jonathan Majors as a bodybuilder. Um, it's something that I think loads of people are excited to see, uh, all my fellow thirsty heads. Um, <laughs> some, uh, some other films, there's one out there for the media lot, for the Twitter gang. Uh, there's a film based on the cat person story that was really, really viral amongst Twitter and literally nowhere else. Uh, that stars Nicholas Braun. Uh, there's also one called Fair Play, which stars Phoebe Dinever from Bridgerton. Uh, that's meant to be like an erotic uh, finance couple, like going head to head, gender like gender war thriller, which I'm most excited about. And I do have tickets for it because uh, they Ooh. do sell, they sell online tickets. So you can buy online tickets if they're not sold out. 20 bucks a piece. And you can watch them online, which I, I did that last time and that was really fun. So I'm excited to watch that on the 24th. Um, there's also Infinity Pool, which is the Brandon Cronenberg movie with uh, the Skarsgård and also Mia Goth. Um, that's hyped up because these two stars are great and it's like a horror thriller. Um, I really enjoyed Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, so I'm super excited about this. I think that one comes out in movie theaters pretty soon. Like it's like the 28th or something. So I'm going to go see that then. Um, it's already been bought. Uh, they're just showing it as a premiere. Um, we've also got Past Lives, which is a Greta Lee movie, you know, reuniting of two childhood best friends back in Seoul. It's, it's apparently taken a lot of people by surprise. There's also mm. Eileen, which is the movie adaptation of the Otessa Moshfeg book. Um, I'm super excited about that. That's got Anne Hathaway and Thomas and Mackenzie. Um, and then obviously Fairyland, which is a Scoot McNary um, father-daughter story. Um, about a gay father so these have been really buzzy everyone's been really liking them there's a shit ton of other stuff i think uh, joyland was also one that was recommended to me and it, i'm just really excited to watch all of these when they come out my favorite thing that's been happening though is that a lot of people on twitter have been getting much braver about calling <laughs> other critics out on twitter about their bad behavior during the festivals like you have to realize that it's been a couple years i think a lot of people it's their first sundance since the pandemic um and there's a lot of bad behavior happening there's a lot of people just acting like dicks uh not being very nice in person compared to how they are um on twitter and everything uh the only problem is that no one's actually calling these people out and i think that's kind of boring um i get it like they're <laughs> but, just like subtweeting and stuff yeah they're subtweeting or they're i mean 
I don't have any of these people on green circles, uh, but I'm sure that that's where oh. the tea is actually being spilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the in the closed profiles or in the profiles where it's just like public, yeah, there, there's a there's a couple of people that are just like, yeah, you guys are dicks in real life, man. And we're gonna link some of them in our Substack so you can kind of check out what we're talking about. But that's been fun. I always love to hear about, um, you know, how people are just in real life absolutely terrible. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's the Redux from Sundance. All right, yeah. thank you for the Sundance Dispatch, yes. our resident correspondent. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> meanwhile, that's it for us this week. If you're watching anything that you think we should check out, as always, please let us know where criticism is dead at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, just criticism is dead, all in word. Uh, for extended show notes, including links, summaries, everything we've been talking about, and more, Check out our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. Mm-hmm. Um, rate us, review us, five stars only on Apple Podcasts or yeah. other podcast platforms. Yeah. Yes, please do that. Tell a friend about us, possibly spread the word about everything and, and anything going on here. And, 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 and send us to Sundance for next year. Oh, if you're sure. Listening. You can, you can Me throw and Jenny that would love to go be out, out here in Utah. <laughs> okay, we can do it. We know snow. Oh, definitely. We know snow. Um, that's it for us this week thank you so much everyone as always it is our pleasure to continue to talking to you each week like this yes thank you bye bye Criticism Instead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Jijia our music is by Rika our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.